Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning, please, and turn to the book of Jonah, third chapter, Jonah chapter 3. Jonah has often been called the greatest fish story ever told. In reality, it's the greatest faith story ever told. Jonah chapter 3, our text this morning begins in verse 4. We're going to be looking together at history's greatest revival. If all you know of the book of Jonah is that Jonah survived a three-day journey in the belly of a great fish, you don't know the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah tells us about God's love for the lost, for those who are cruel and filled with sin, God's love for Nineveh, a place that no person would want to visit and no gospel preacher would want to share God's Word. They were so fierce of people, and yet the Word of God tells us in the book of Jonah that God commissioned Jonah to that place so that a great faith story could be told, a story that rings true throughout the ages, that God can answer prayer and God can bring revival. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, and Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and sat at ashes. He caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, should taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God, yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent? Turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into his word this morning. Father, I pray now that you'd allow your word to be precious to our hearts. And Lord, as a people living in a land in desperate need of revival, that we be encouraged to understand Lord, you do hear prayer, that you can hear our prayers. Send a revival, Lord, to our church, to our city, to our nation. Spare your judgment. Cause many to come to Christ as Savior. Lord, our prayer is that the cross will be lifted up and the promise that you've given, that if you be lifted up, you'll draw many men unto yourselves. And so, Lord, I pray that you draw, and may the Spirit of God do that work this morning in drawing someone from far away, even to the heart of the Lord this morning, through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. According to the Francis Schaeffer Institute of Church Leadership Development, 4,000 churches close in America every year. 1,000 new churches are planted. Between 1990 and 2000, According to the studies that have been done, there are almost 5 million people who left churches in America, specifically Protestant churches, while the population of our country grew by some 24 million. 
If you were to look back on the state of churches in America back in 1900, you'd discover that there were 27 churches for every 100,000 people, or every 10,000 people rather, living in America. By 2000, that number had declined so that there were 11 churches for every 10,000 people living in America. Today, the United States ranks behind only India and China when it comes to the number of people within our population who have not yet heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Did you hear that? That means that America and Americans form the third largest unreached people group in the world. As a witness to America's spiritual decline, we look around and we hear of violence. We hear of an escalation of murder rates. We hear of violent crimes. We hear of illegitimacy. We hear of drug dependency. We hear of the fracturing of the family. We hear of an increase in suicide. Folks, we need to be pleading with God with the words of the psalmist in Psalm 85 and verse 6. Psalm 85 and verse 6 says, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, and George Whitfield cried out for revival in a time that came to be known as the Great Awakening. In fact, in the 1740s, when the population of the colonies was much smaller than our population today, over 50,000 people came to Christ as Savior during the the 1740s, and over 350 new churches were planted because of the Great Awakening. A half century later, America was again in decline, and so it was that Francis Asbury and Peter Cartwright, Timothy Dwight, and Charles Finney cried out for a great revival. God sent what was called the Second Great Awakening. Membership in churches soared, especially among the Methodist and the Baptist. And many of the Baptists in America can trace their heritage right back to the Second Great Awakening. Then in 1857, again a tremendous time of difficulty, especially economic difficulty in America. Hard times were increasing. The Civil War was looming. And the North Dutch Reformed Church in Manhattan looked around and realized that there were more cobwebs than congregants in their church. So they set upon something rather unusual. They hired a man, Jeremiah Lanfear, in 1848 and asked Jeremiah Lanfear to leave his job as a clothier, to simply go door to door and invite people from hotels and apartment houses, especially people who were living along the wharfs on the east and the west sides of New York to come to church services. He knocked on doors. He shared the gospel. He came home to the quarters that the church provided for him, discouraged every night. He spent his nights in prayer, crying out to God and seeing very little fruit. And then an idea crossed his mind, a simple idea. He thought, I hear a lot of people complaining about the circumstances in their workplace and complaining about the economy. What if we would have a prayer meeting? And so he posted a sign that on noon, at noon on the 23rd of September in 1848, he would host a prayer meeting at the North Dutch Reformed Church. At noon, he opened the doors. At 12.05, he was the only one there. At 12.15, the only one there. By 12.30, five others had gathered with him. They bowed together and they prayed. 
The next week on Wednesday, he hosted another prayer meeting. There were 20 in attendance. The third week, there were 40 in attendance. In fact, the church was filling up with people who were coming every Wednesday for noon prayer meeting, so much so that three different rooms in the church were necessarily used in order for the prayer meeting to be conducted. That was 1857. By the spring of 1858 in April, over 10,000 were gathering in New York City for a noon prayer meeting. By May of 1858, more than 50,000 people had come to Jesus Christ as Savior, and the revival was sweeping and spreading. It spread throughout New England. It spread to Ontario. It spread to Chicago. It spread as far south as Atlanta and through Cleveland. Church historians estimate that more than one million converts were added to the roles of the church between 1857 and 1860. The impact of the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening and the Great Revival in America is undeniable, and it's inspirational. But the, the impact of these revivals, why the impact of these revivals pair in comparison to the revival spoken of in the book of Jonah, chapter 3. You see, the book of Jonah introduces us to a reluctant prophet who's sent of God to a very difficult place. The great city, it's called four times in the book of Jonah, the great city of Nineveh. It's the capital city of ancient Assyria. Some 600,000 to 1 million people are living there. And one prophet, one bleached out, whale-washed prophet by the name of Jonah is sent there to bring a message. And we read in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 5 that the people of Nineveh believed God and they proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And in verse 10, you read this, that God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Here is the record of history's greatest revival. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you believe that God can send a revival in our time? Well, Jeremiah did. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32 and verse 17 said, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power, stretched out thy arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Do you believe that God can send a revival in our time? Let's ask another question. So what would it take for a revival to come? What would it take for a revival to come to our land? I think the answer is found as we look in Jonah chapter 3, this place called Nineveh. There's a four, fourfold answer in Jonah chapter 3 to the question, what does it take for revival to come? Let me share the answer with you simply this morning. The first thing we discover in this passage is that the people heard from God. Verse 4 says, And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried, and he said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now Jonah's little sermon had a great big impact. In the English language, Jonah's sermon is nothing more than eight words. In the Hebrew language, it's nothing more than five words. There are no funny stories in this message. There are no points to be delineated. There are no illustrations. There are no poems. Eight simple words, five in the original language, a straightforward, not politically correct message that was shared. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall not be overthrown. This is not a popular message. This is not a pretty message. 
This is a powerful message. You see, God had said to Jonah back in Jonah 3 and verse 2, go to Nineveh and preach unto unto it the preaching that I bid thee. Jonah, Jonah was simply the mouthpiece of the message that God had given to him. And God gave him a message that would penetrate the hearts of the people in Nineveh. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It was the Word of God that was being heard. And the Word of God is quick and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. Listen, friends, there's no power in today's user-friendly message that seeks to help the felt needs of a congregation without seeking to make a difference in the spiritual lives and the hearts of the listeners. With eight little words, Jonah makes the Ninevites know something. He makes the Ninevites know that God's judgment is coming. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Hey, friends, God has told us that judgment is coming. The Word of God says in Matthew 25 and verse 13, the words of the Lord, you don't know the day and you don't know the hour in which the Son of Man will come. So he has already warned us in Matthew chapter 24, Be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man will come. And Jonah is preaching about a judgment that is very severe. Jonah says, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. He uses the same word that's used to describe the overthrowing of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, the complete obliteration of that city. Jonah says, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Judgment is coming. and Judgment is severe. We live in a land today dominated by the preaching of televangelists who look good on screen but say often very little, having little of the power of God. They lead many astray into a a populist message of prosperity without any message about sin. They share a wide gate and a wide way, way that leads, unfortunately, to destruction. We're surrounded by a generation, listen folks, we're surrounded by a generation that according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is saying peace and safety and not understanding that sudden destruction can come upon us even as a woman with child. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, however, says sudden destruction comes upon them. For when they shall say peace and safety. But ye, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, speaking to believers, are not of the night, but you're of the day. Knowing that Jesus has promised to come again, and knowing that following his coming, there will be great wrath poured out. We have a message that needs to be shared. And that message very simply is this, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. That the wages of sin is death. The message that needs to be heard is be sure your sins will find you out. And what is true and needs to be heard nationally needs to be heard individually as well. That sin has a price that requires paying. What brought revival to Nineveh? The people of Nineveh heard the word of God And the people of Nineveh believed in God. So we read in verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Now verse 5 does not say the people of Nineveh believed Jonah. No, it says specifically the people of Nineveh believed Elohim. Elohim. The people of Nineveh worshipped Dagon. Dagon was half man and half fish. They believed that Dagon was the source of life. They'd been weaned on that belief. 
But suddenly Jonah comes with a message from God and the Bible tells us the people of Nineveh believed in Elohim, our creator God, the one who shares the words of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Friends, we're living in a country today that's dominated by a religion called secular humanism. The secular humanist believes that God perhaps made man, perhaps not. In fact, the secular humanist believes the creation story to be the story of evolution. The chance and time allowed mankind to be. And the secular humanist teaches that mankind can be good apart from any divine instruction. But the truth of the Word of God is in the beginning, God created. And there is, listen, there's no mediating truth between the evolutionist view and the Bible's declaration that God created. Either God created or man evolved. There's no mediating truth between those two two things. And from a human capacity of reasoning, we would think it would be impossible for someone who's weaned on the secular humanism of no divine revelation and mankind coming from an evolvement of the species, how can that person ever believe that God created and lay hold of the truth that the God who created us ultimately is going to cause us to stand before him in judgment? How can a person pass from this belief to that belief? The word of God was heard. And when the word of God was heard in Nineveh, people believed. They came to understand that they were created in God's image, and God moved their hearts. Say, around this room this morning, there are those who started off in their lives and their journey believing in evolution. They may even have had some concept of a theistic evolution that God cooperated in the evolutionary process to bring mankind into being. But they've turned from that to believe that God created the heaven and the earth in six days and six nights. And on the seventh day, he rested. They've come to put their trust in the one who created them, body, soul, and spirit, the one before whom one day they will stand at last. All around this room this morning, there are those that God moved from this position to this position. How did it happen? The light of God's word shined upon their hearts, and they believed. The people of Nineveh believed, and so we asked the question this morning, do you believe? Do you believe in God? Do you believe that God created you for his glory and made you in his image? And if you say, yes, pastor, I'm here on a Sunday morning because I believe in God, well, be careful. James chapter 2 says in verse 19, thou believest that there is a God, thou doest well. The demons also, or the devils also believe and they tremble. It's not enough to simply believe in God the Creator. We need to believe in God the Redeemer, the one who's our Savior. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, the declaration of the apostles very clearly given, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Have you come to believe in Jesus Christ who took your sin on the cross of Calvary, was buried and rose again the third day? Have you come to believe in him as the way to heaven, the way to life eternal with God? Do you believe that he offered the perfect sacrifice for you? Have you come to trust in the old message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life? What brought revival to Nineveh? Well, the Bible tells us they heard from God and they believed in God and the people repented before God. 
Let's begin our reading in verse 5 once again. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and he covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and the nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, the symbol of a repentance and sorrow, and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that's in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Now, to repent means to turn. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus is preaching. He's speaking to those that he met on the road of Emmaus. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus says that this message is to be given. Thus it's written. And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. That's the message today. Repentance and remission of sins is to be preached among all nations. What's repentance? Well, the Greek word repentance, metanoia, means to turn. You're going one direction, and the Spirit of God allows you to turn another direction. But you're going on this direction, living for yourself, living according to those beliefs that you've had, and you've turned to put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. The people of Nineveh repented. There was a change of mind. They turned from Dagon to Elohim. And you know what happened? Their personal behavior changed. Verse 5 says, from the greatest to the least, they proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth. They showed the sorrow that they had for their sin. In verse 6, the king of the country sees what's happening, and he gets involved by putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes, and their public behavior changed. The king gets involved and says, let them turn from their evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Since 1789, there have been 151 national days of prayer that have been called for in our country. That's a good thing for those who are in rulership over us to encourage the citizenry of this country to take time and pray. With those days of prayer, very few words have been given with regard to the matter of repentance, turning. Repentance is a true evidence of God doing a true work in a heart. And so it is that today in America, 44 people are murdered every day. 20,000 people murdered every year. Our nation talks about God, but the Bible reminds us that faith without works is dead because it's alone. If there's going to be real revival, God's Word needs to be heard, and God's people need to believe, and there needs to be a real repentance, a real turning, a real change of mind that changes direction. You see, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away and all things become new. Friend, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, your life ought to give testimony that something different is happening. And there's one more thing that I want you to see this morning. What brought revival to Nineveh? The people prayed. They prayed. According to verse 8, the king of Nineveh encouraged the people to cry mightily unto God. You see, without prayer, there can be no real revival. It's often cited, but never too often. For the character of God is seen in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14 when he promises that if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way, he will hear from heaven. He will forgive their sins. He will heal 
their land. The people of Nineveh prayed earnestly. They cried, verse 8, mightily unto the Lord. And they prayed hopefully, verse 9. Who can tell if God will repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? There are a lot of people that are afraid of the national debt. People are warned that we're passing this on to the future generations. Christians ought to be more afraid of a nation without repentance than they are of a nation with a great national debt. Passing along to our children the burden of sin-sick hearts. Oh, Christian, God wants us to pray. I'm afraid that there are many in America today who've given up hope that God can bring revival. They've forgotten that Jesus said in Matthew 19 and verse 26 that with God all things are possible. 2,700 years ago, if you would have asked a Jew if there could ever be a repentance in Nineveh, they would have laughed. I can guarantee you this, Jonah never had repentance in Nineveh on his daily prayer list. Jonah didn't want to have anything to do with Nineveh. But God can bring revival anytime, and God can bring revival anywhere, and that's the message of Jonah. God can bring revival anywhere and anytime. Evan Roberts was the preacher whom God used to bring an amazing revival in Wales in the 1900s. He was in a small meeting with a small group of people when he offered them four things to radically change their lifestyles. Evans said, first, we all need to confess our known sins. Second, he said, we need to get rid of anything that's doubtful in our lives. If it's doubtful, he said, don't do it. Third, he said, we need to be ready to obey the Holy Spirit of God instantly. And finally, Roberts recommended we need to be willing to share our allegiance with Jesus Christ publicly. People responded. and God sent revival. By the end of the first week, 60 people responded and took the challenge of these four activities, that they would confess their known sins, that they would get rid of their compromising activities, setting a new standard of holiness in the way they live, that they would anticipate that God would give them opportunity and they would share Jesus Christ publicly. During the second week of those meetings that Everett Roberts was having, he decided that he would begin to travel around Wales and preach the gospel and share a challenge with the people of Wales. Within a year, 100,000 people in Wales came to know Jesus Christ as Savior. You say, how do you know that God brought a work of revival in Wales? Well, let me read one description of the Welsh revival to you this morning. Historians say as people confessed their sin and pleaded for the controlling of the Spirit of God, they did all that they could to confess wrongdoings and make restitution. They unexpectedly created severe problems for the shipyards along the coast of Wales. Over the years, workers had pilfered all kinds of things. Everything from wheelbarrows to hammers had been stolen. However, as people sought to be right with God, they started to return what they'd taken, with the result that soon the shipyards of Wales were overwhelmed with returned property. It was such a huge pile of returned tools that several of the yards actually put up signs asking the men to stop. One sign read, If you've been led of God to return what you've stolen, please know that the management forgives you and wishes you to keep what you took. (laughs) When real revival happens, things change. Folks, it's been a long time since America's had real revival, but it's still possible. 
Evan Roberts was right because he was acknowledging principles of God's Word when he said, we need to confess our known sins. We need to raise a standard of holiness that avoids doubtful living. We need to stay alert to whatever it is that God wants us to do. We need to confess Christ publicly in our sphere of influence. Knowing the history of Nineveh, we know that God spared Nineveh for 100 years. And then Nineveh went back to its old ways. And God sent judgment upon the Assyrians and upon the city of Nineveh. One prophet, one five-word message, and one country spared for 100 years. You know what? When we get to heaven, we're going to meet some people from Nineveh. They're going to thank the Lord that one person was sent on a commission to preach revival. Dear friends, should the Lord tarry, we need to be preaching revival and praying for revival. May God stir our hearts to trust that He can bring revival even to our country. Will you stand with me as we pray? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and no one looking around. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.